I want to talk to you for a few minutes this morning about how God changes our minds. How God changes our minds. I'm going to draw our attention to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 this morning. The Scripture declares to us, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer or present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and to prove what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Lord, as we approach this time of the service, I ask now that you, by the leading of your Holy Spirit, would begin to enlighten to our hearts exactly what your word means, how we are to apply it in our own lives. May we not sit here and hear this and think, oh, I wish so-and-so was hearing this, but may we understand that you guide and direct in each of our lives how you want to apply it so that we can become more like you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we took a look at a passage of Scripture, and we begin to evaluate friendship, not only with one another, but friendship with Jesus from the perspective that that relationship started in the Trinity, with the friendship that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the love of relationship and delight that they had in each other that then is put within our nature because we are made in His nature. And we spent some time examining the benefits of, of having the inward guide of the Holy Spirit that when we receive Jesus, now not, I'm not talking about just believing that Jesus exists, but I'm talking about receiving and yielding our lives to him so that he becomes the guide of our life, that when we do that, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within our life and becomes an inward guide on our spiritual journey toward growth and maturity in Christlikeness. I have stated many times that if you can look back at a time in your life where those of you who have a relationship with Christ can see that you were closer to the Lord or that you were more Christ-like than you are today, it's not because God abandoned you, but at some point in time, it was because you took away His role as the Lord and Master and began to assume that control yourself. There's a context that gives us an understanding of what Paul had been speaking about up to this point and how he will lead us from there. And if you were to look at the entire book of Romans, you would discover that in these first 11 chapters, there's some incredible doctrine that is shared with us. In fact, in chapters 1 through 3, he talks about sin and the problem of human depravity. He outlines the, doctor, the doctrine of justification in chapters 3 through 5. Paul writes about the doctrinal aspects of sanctification and the believer's struggle with sin in chapters 6 and 7. And then in chapter 8, he talks about the security of the believer. In chapter 9, he talks about the sovereignty of God. And in chapters 10 and 11, he talks about the role of Israel and the triumph of his future plan. And after devoting 11 chapters to heavy-duty theology... And by the way, I just want you to know that on our Wednesday nights, we are going through the book of Romans. We have pastors Larry and Pastor Sharon Frank that are teaching our adult Bible study. And for those of you that are interested in that, they have just begun and you're going to want to join in on that because it's a great study. But there's a lot of heavy-duty theology that takes place. And then you get to chapter 12 and Paul begins a transition from doctrine to duty or from belief to behavior. 
In fact, this chapter, chapter 12 of Romans, has more commands in it for how we are to live and how we are to behave than any other chapter in the New Testament. It's a chapter of action. In fact, Paul's thesis is this. Your beliefs, what you believe about the Lord and what you believe about the Bible and what you believe that he would say to you should always turn into behavior that is lived out. In other words, your theology should turn into walkology. There needs to be a consistency in what you proclaim to people that you believe about the Lord and in the way that you live out those beliefs. And so Paul transitions here with this word, therefore, based on the first 11 chapters of doctrine, therefore, here's the way that should look within your life. In light of what God has done, here's how we should live. And the first thing that Paul says is a, is a pre- presentation of ourselves before God. He said, you are to present your bodies. Now, I, I want you to notice that he doesn't use a term here that says, yield your bodies. He doesn't say, surrender your bodies, which are all biblical terms, but he says that those terms, surrender and yield, would imply a measure of resistance, would imply a measure of reluctance on your part. He said, present your bodies, which implies that we do so with gladness, that we do so with happiness. This is not something God's dragging me into. This is something that I'm first in line, Here I am, Lord, I present myself to you, the entirety of my body, so that you can lead and guide how you desire to do so within my life. Because I understand that as I do so, you know where we're going and you know how to lead us. Now the interesting thing about this word present is it is used again in the 14th chapter of Romans, but this time it is used that we present our bodies before God at judgment. And this is strictly speaking of Christians who are anxious because of the work of Jesus Christ to stand before God for reward. You're not going to have to drag us in at that point. When God is handing out rewards, I'm, I'm in line. Here I am. I'm presenting myself. Now, you do that when you have the assurance that your life is right with God. You present yourself. And Paul says that is the way that we are to do it. In fact, he states that when you present your body as a sacrifice, you are fulfilling a spiritual act of worship. Now, if I were to ask most of you, what does worship look like? Some of you would say, well, we got about 20 minutes on a Sunday morning. When we come into the Lord and we have the the worship team and the band and the vocalists that lead us in worship and we've got those 20 minutes that's just, it's some of the best 20 minutes of the week, but I want you to understand that is not the worship that he's talking about here. He's saying when you present yourself to the Lord, worship is something that takes place on a Monday through Saturday. That there is an obedience within us that leads us to understand our life declares before the Lord his greatness. And we live in such a way that uh, the heart of sacrifice that he gave for us is expressed in our heart of gratitude. And so it puts feet to our faith. Not only does Paul command us to present our bodies, he also commands us to renew our minds. It says, and this command is what I'd like to look closely at in the second verse of chapter 12. It says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There are two points that he brings up here, and it's interesting because 
These are the things I'd like to dwell on for just the next few moments. Our minds are going to be influenced in one of two ways. We can either be influenced from the outside by the world through a worldly pressure that conforms us and is constantly trying to push us into the standards of the world, or we can be transformed from the inside out. Remember, we we spoke of when we receive Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells us, comes into our life, and from the inside begins to work out in us the nature of Jesus Christ, and part of that is the renewing of our mind. And so clearly the scripture indicates to us here that whether you realize it or not, one of these two things is happening to every one of us at all times. We are either being influenced from the outside to conform to the standards of the world and we can do this by simply being passive in our relationship with God. If we simply say, you know what, I I know he exists and I've received him as my savior, but I don't want to demonstrate any of the disciplines that would be necessary in order for me to grow, then you take a passive approach and I can assure you that if you are going to be passive with your spiritual life, you will ultimately conform to the world. Or you can actively pursue the Lord by which he then renews you and transforms you in a daily process into greater and greater Christ-likeness. There's no middle ground and there's no standing skill. You will be moving one way or the other. The first command that he gives is to not be conformed to the world. Now Paul uses a Greek word here when he's talking about not being conformed, and frankly, I have practiced all week trying to try to say it, and I cannot pronounce it, and so I'm not even going to try. It would just simply be an embarrassment. But there's a Greek word. And it means conformed to the world, which is a pressure from the outside. It it literally means fashioning or changing something into the likeness of another. But it's a unique word in the fact that it means also that the fashioning is unstable, that is transitory. It speaks almost of having cosmetics being placed over the face of an individual which changes their appearance from the outside, and it's an external thing. It would be similar to having plastic surgery and putting on makeup that changes the look but does not change the individual. The DNA stays the same, even though the look on the outside changes. You would use this word if you were working with clay, or you might use it if you were a builder and you're putting drywall up and you stick tape over it and you stick mud on that and you begin to try to remove the seams from an outside thing. That's the way that this word of being conformed to the world is used. It's brought on by an external pressure that tries to hide from the outside the weaknesses and the flaws as you cover things up. The Bible tells us that this is a warning to believers And some people believe, how how can this be to believers? Because aren't believers immune to being tempted? Aren't we immune from the pressures of the world? And I want you to know that because we live in this world, though we are not of it, means that we are constantly facing the pressures of the world to conform. One of the marks of a true Christian is that we constantly resist the pressure, that we constantly struggle against worldly influences, and we seek to purify ourselves as Christ is pure. And yet we also understand that in every one of our lives there are sinful corruption and debris that remain in our life all the time. There are weaknesses that we have that we understand and we know that if we neglect those weaknesses and if we neglect the weaknesses in our character that would lead us to sin, that ultimately those things will begin to take a stronger hold on us and we will be conformed to the world. 
here's one of the issues that I have because it seems to be affecting this generation and the church. The church is filled with people, including many Christian leaders, who seem to think that the church ought to strive to be as much like the world as possible. And so we see multitudes of people who profess to be Christ's followers but are being conformed to the world. In fact, many who call themselves Christ followers are indistinguishable from their unsaved neighbors. Many live as if their faith and their everyday living are unrelated. They live as if they have a spiritual life that they live out on a Sunday morning for an hour and 15 or 20 minutes, and then when they leave here, they have a secular life that they want to blend into the world as much as they possibly can without an understanding that the Lord is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. We endanger ourselves when we immerse ourselves in the same types of entertainment. That entertainment then influences our moral behavior as we break down the standard of what God says is pure. We allow our interests and our hobbies and our desires to be entertained to push faithfulness to the spiritual development into a secondary role. I would rather be entertained than have to be disciplined, O Lord. And when it is convenient, we say, I will serve you, Lord, when I've got nothing else going on. When it's Convenient for me, I will come to church. If there's other things I'd rather do, I'll be there. But Lord, when I'm there, I want you to influence me. And in many ways, we are not diligent enough to keep ourselves from being conformed to the world, and it is to our spiritual detriment when we try to seek to be like the world and still in love with God. In fact, in 1 John chapter 2, Verses 15 and 16, the scripture says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of the sinful man, the lust of the eyes, and the boasting of what he does comes not from the Father, but comes from the world. Spiritual passivity leads to a cooling of our hearts and leads to a drying of our spirit. In fact, in Matthew chapter 24, verses 12 and 13, it gives a description of what is happening around us in this day and age. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. It is important for us as a church to understand that we cannot simply float along because you do not drift toward holiness. You will always drift toward worldliness. Now listen very closely. I was in prayer all week saying, God, give me the right words to present this because if any of you know me at all, you know that I am a foe of legalism. I despise extra-biblical rules and teachings that tell Christians that in order to live a life pleasing to God, you have to do all of these do's and don'ts that have nothing to do with biblical holiness. And so I am not speaking of an outward appearance that says to everybody, look at me, I look holy. But what I am talking about is in our zeal to guard our liberty in grace, we must remember there are grave consequences to float the other way too far. We must resist being conformed to the world. This calls for a willful, deliberate, 
self-control and exercise, particularly in the arena of the mind and our thoughts. This is how you resist worldly pressure to conform. You can't do it merely by following a list of rules that govern external behavior or managing your external appearance. You have to get control of your mind. You have to direct it toward holiness. You have to tell your mind what to think about and you have to fill it intentionally with things that will break the old patterns and enhance the patterns that God desires of you. The Apostle Paul isn't calling for surrender or passivity or anything like that. He is urging us to take control of our thoughts under the power of the Holy Spirit and give them direction, which leads us to the second point, transformed by the renewing of your mind. I just mentioned a while ago that the word conformed from the outside is a word I couldn't possibly pronounce, but it speaks of an outward change where something is molded by external pressure. Here, Paul uses a different idea and a different word for transformed. It's the Greek word metamorpho, which is obviously the origin of our English word metamorphosis. It speaks of a change that takes place from the inside out. Interesting enough, it speaks of a change that we are incapable of without the help of an inward Holy Spirit. In other words, you might try to do your very best to live holy, but you are incapable of it without the inward motivation of the Holy Spirit leading and guiding you. Why is it so important for us to concentrate on our mind? Why is it so important to that he speaks of our mind and the intellect and our thoughts? I believe that Proverbs 4.23 says this, above all else, Guard your heart. Guard your mind. Because everything that goes through there then becomes later on an action of your being. It becomes the wellspring of your life. The mind is what rules us. All of our actions, all of our choices, all of our decisions, all of our emotions are fed and watered by what flows through the mind. And what you think about, what you believe, what you be believe and perceive reality to be. And to a large degree, we can control what we think about by what we feed ourselves. And that's why he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, how do we do that practically? This sounds great, and some of you are going, ooh, that sounds good. Have no idea what to do about that. I'm going to conclude this morning by giving you six practical action points that will help you as you begin to put into action, how do I transform I allow the Holy Spirit to transform and renew my mind. First of all, confirm your salvation. Paul is writing to Christians here. That's why he says, I, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. In other words, he's not speaking to those that are outside the realm or the family of God. He's talking about people because he knows that even as believers, we constantly are in a struggle with our thought life. In fact, in 2 Peter 1.10, he says this, Be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. In other words, we've got to work hard on being saved people. It requires work of us. And so if you are struggling perpetually with evil thoughts, if you're struggling constantly with keeping your thought mind and thought and mind together, and you have no interest in the things of the Lord, it might be that you have never truly experienced what it means to be saved. 
You might have acknowledged that Jesus existed and may have even acknowledged of what he's done, but you've never let him take a role in your life where he sits on the throne and he becomes the Lord and the guide of everything in your life. I do believe that we have proclaimed an easy grace at times that has no lifestyle follow-up just so that we can get people to say a prayer and scripture clearly indicates that that is not a genuine salvation. That there must be a lifestyle that follows after. And so today, if you have discovered that by sheer force of your own will that you are incapable of changing, it might be today that you need to ask Jesus to become your Savior and your Lord. And that in new birth, you will finally discover that the renewing of your mind takes place in combination with the work of the Spirit and your discipline. Secondly, clear your conscience. My wife has a wonderful, wonderful way of reminding me when she thinks the garbage needs to be taken out. She pulls it out of the can and lays it right in front of the door. The only thing we disagree on is that I buy those particular bags that are supposed to expand. And I want my money's worth. And so I could stick a foot in that and put that thing back in and say, we got two more days. The problem with garbage that accumulates is this. Accumulated garbage stinks. Her nose is way better than mine. I want you to know it's the same thing in our thought process as well. There comes moments in times, and you're going to have one in just a few minutes, when it's time to stand before the, the Lord and say, I need you to clean the garbage out of my conscience. I need you to take that bag that's been there that has been rotting in the sun and is beginning to stink and it's beginning to affect everything else in me, and Lord, with the help of the Spirit, I need you to help me take that out and cast it as far as the east is from the west so that we can remove that because that's the beginning of being transformed by the renewing of your mind. If you don't first clear your conscience, you will never get anywhere trying to renew your mind because impure thoughts defile your conscience. And if you have settled the matter in salvation, the next step is to cry out the same prayer that you find in Psalm 51.10 when David says, Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me, O God. I believe that it would be completely appropriate for every child of God to pray this prayer every day. Lord, you know what I'm going to face today. You know the things of the entertainment that have deposited debris within me. Today would you create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit, help me take the garbage out of my conscience, Lord. Thirdly, you must commit to holiness in your private life. You must commit to holiness in your private life. In verse 2 it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then there's these words, That by testing you may discern. This is speaking of something that must take place in the life of every believer, and it's not something that you can do in an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. In fact, the true test of your holiness, the true test of your discipline will always come when you find yourself alone. And so you must learn to cultivate holiness in solitude. It's the most important aspect of your spiritual growth. Fellowship groups, Bible studies, 
Discipling relationships all have their role, and we need that. Even accountability groups, they all have their role. But there's no aspect of your spiritual life that's more important in your pursuit of holiness than what you do when nobody is around. You have to be committed to that. Because no amount of accountability and fellowship can possibly help you in the long run if you're not willing to be disciplined enough to know where you can and can't go and what you can and can't do. And if you're not willing to cultivate holiness in your own private life, it's great to seek accountability and fellowship, but the company of other people is only a small deterrent to sin. Part of what needs to take place within our lives is this. Eventually, you're going to find yourself alone, and it would be wise for you to begin to picture what it is like that in the spiritual realm, God sees and sits beside us every moment of the day and night. We often participate in things that we would never do if somebody was sitting right next to us, but we often forget that the fear of the Lord is the one who's sitting next to us and begins to speak to us and leads us. He always gives us a way of escape if we are disciplined enough to want to pursue it. And so you must commit to holiness in your private life, and that will help in the process of renewing your mind. Fourthly, cultivate your spiritual gift cultivate your spiritual gift choose a pastime that's edifying choose to do something that has some eternal worth to it one of the most dangerous times for people who are struggling with their thought life is when they are idle and don't have anything else to do because naturally, the natural man will always move us to a place that is not drifting us toward holiness, it's drifting us toward worldliness. And so idle time can become very dangerous time. So what I am saying is it's a sin to waste time, especially when you have gifts that God wants to use and that you can invest in his kingdom and that you can invest in people. In fact, in verse 6 of this chapter, it says this, we have differing gifts according to the grace given us. Let us use them. When you are alone and don't know what to do, be in the work of the Lord. Use the gifts that God has given to you. Find what you're good at. Find what you enjoy doing and seek ways to use your gifts to edify others. Fifthly, Continue steadfastly in prayer. In verses 11 and 12, it says, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. Now, here's the way the enemy attacks me. I like to walk when I pray. And as I'm walking as I pray, I'm also a list person. And so as I'm walking and begin to start a conversation with the Lord, the enemy knows that's the time to start putting things on my list that I have to get done. Because as a result of that, I have to stop what I'm doing, run and find my paper and pad and write it down. And I've discovered the moment I write it down, it then becomes a duty that needs to be taken care of right then. And so the enemy knows how best to interrupt your praying time because he knows his kingdom rises and falls depending on the prayer of the saints. And so when the Bible commands us that we need to be steadfast in prayer, faithful in prayer, what God understands is that when you pray, you have a hard time of thinking impure thoughts. It's hard to indulge in imaginations and fantasies when you're directing your mind towards the things of the Lord. And this is an area that he commands us to be proactive in. Cultivate your prayer life. 
Get in the habit of praying. Get in the habit of praying whenever you may be alone. If you're in the office and have a few minutes, you don't have to close your eyes and yell out loud. Just begin to pray saying, Lord, these are one of those moments I just want to focus attention on you. Can I just express to you, God, how thankful I am that I'm not in this journey alone. When you're driving with your eyes open, pray and seek the Lord. When you're singing your music, Nobody cares if you're on key or not. Sing with all your heart and worship the Lord. Engage God in the everyday moments of your life and continue steadfastly in prayer. It's a matter of absorbing and interacting with the Holy Spirit and giving him opportunity to be at work within you. And when you read the Bible, start it out by saying, Holy Spirit, lead me to the truth that I need to battle Every battle that I will have today that's going to trying to seek me to conform. And then there's this final step, step number six. Cling to what is good. Worship team, would you please come? In verse nine of this chapter, it says this. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Now, for those of you that are reading the King James Version of the Bible... The word that is used to describe how we should treat things that are unclean are abhor. Abhor evil. So I did a little work on that one because that's not a a word that we generally use every day. And it means detest, hate, loathe, despise, regard with disgust. Here's what's interesting about that. We have a nature of man that we naturally gravitate to, but when the Holy Spirit resides within us, his nature of hating that which is evil begins to leach into the nature of our being. Without even realizing it, some of the things that you used to be most attractive to will suddenly become things that you look at and go, oh, oh, I can't believe I used to like that. I can't believe I used to be able to watch that. I can't believe I used to participate in that. It makes me feel so sick and unclean on the inside. That's the Spirit of God helping you as he raises up this level of being able to abhor evil so that his goodness and his nature can become alive in you. That's how we can let the Holy Spirit transform our minds.